This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for February 27th. Israel and Hamas play down hopes of a ceasefire in Gaza. Can the White House get a deal before Ramadan begins? And will the Israel-Hamas war cost Biden votes in the Michigan primary? Plus, a CBC News investigation reveals which schools are responsible for the nationwide explosion in international student permits. We'll dig into the documents and get reaction from a higher education expert. And the RC... And the RCMP confirms it's looking into contracting around the Arrive Can app. The power panel weighs the optics of this for the Liberal government. We begin in the U.S. in a key battleground that could set the stage for a Biden-Trump face-off in the November presidential election. The state of Michigan goes to the polls today in both the Republican and Democratic primaries. The result is widely expected, but it could showcase weaknesses in both the Biden and Trump campaigns. The CBC's Katie Simpson is watching this race from Washington. So, Katie, let's start with the Democrats. This is a key state for Joe Biden, and this is going to be an interesting contest for the president. Yeah, and actually Joe Biden rearranged uh, how this primary season was going to work to give more emphasis to states uh, that were more reflective of the population, that were more diverse rather than, you know, Iowa to start. And moving Michigan, moving things around so Michigan is more prominent in this race uh, was no mistake by the Biden campaign, but it could be tricky for Joe Biden. There is a campaign underway right now. urging Joe Biden to listen to voters who are frustrated with his handling of the war in the Middle East. Uh, A number of voters centered in Michigan, particularly around the community of Dearborn, which is an incredibly diverse community. Um, Roughly 50 percent of the population uh, describes and self-identifies as Arab American or come from northern Africa. And it is in Dearborn and in and around the state of Michigan we've seen this huge, intense push from voters who traditionally vote Democrat to say we are frustrated with the way that Joe Biden has responded to the war and they are calling for a ceasefire and they want to send that message to the White House. And so part of that campaign involves today and uh, ticking off a box that says uncommitted when Democrats go into that ballot box. Uh, Joe Biden is still expected to easily win, but these voters want to send a message and it's getting a lot of traction. Have a listen to what Rashida Tlaib, who is a member of Congress, she's a Democrat. This is what she said as she went ahead and checked the uncommitted box today. I was proud today to walk in and pull a Democratic ballot and vote uncommitted. We must protect our democracy. We must make sure that our government is about us, about the people. When 74% of Democrats in Michigan support a ceasefire, yet President Biden is not hearing us, this is the way we can use our democracy to say, listen, Listen to Michigan. So this could highlight a weakness in the Biden campaign. Joe Biden has disappointed a lot of progressive voters, a lot of young voters, and there could be uh, this vote could represent some of that and some broader troubles to come ahead in the general election race. Okay, Katie, so what's at stake here for the Republicans? It looks like Trump is just running away with this. So so what's, uh, what's the issue for the GOP today? Yeah, it's the next stop in Plowtown as Donald Trump just <laughs> plows right through this race. There, There is a committed, a, a stu- it's being described in U.S. news outlets as a stubborn block of reporters, uh, not reporters, a stubborn block of voters who are continuing to support Nikki Haley. But at the end of the day, this is this is the Trump show. Um, so uh, it's it's not necessarily a, a matter of how much of what 
if Trump will win, it's just a matter of how big the margin will be. But Michigan is an interesting place when it comes to Republicans. It is a center focus of uh, some of the concerns around voter fraud and false claims of voter fraud and and. It's, it's, it's going to be an interesting state coming up in the, the, the general election picture. Donald Trump is expected to win. Donald Trump is expected to push ahead to win the, the Republican nomination. Super Tuesday is coming up in uh, uh, actually a week. Is today Tuesday? Mm-hmm. Today is Tuesday. Yeah. Super Tuesday. Is, it's Super Tuesday. Um, Donald Trump is expected to basically, you know, get enough votes to sort of sail his way through the process, lock up everything on Super Tuesday, and then head to the official nomination, the the crowning ceremony, we shall call it, uh, this summer uh, in July, uh, where he will officially become the nominee. But this is just another stop. As uh, Nikki Haley says, she's not giving up. She's campaigning, crisscrossing the country, trying to pick up those votes in swing states, or not swing states, in the states that will vote on Super Tuesday. She's pushing ahead, but it's, it's it's not good. Yeah, okay. but uh, Katie, the Michigan story for the Democrats, that, that's the thing to watch because that's going really to really in the general That's the big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, Katie, thanks for breaking it down. This is CBC's thanks. Katie Simpson with us today in Washington. Well, as Katie just mentioned, the war in Gaza is posing a risk to Biden's re-election bid. Last night, the U.S. president expressed optimism that a ceasefire deal could be struck by next week. But today, both Hamas and Israel played down that talk. Hamas wants a permanent halt to fighting, while Israel is reportedly only interested in a six-week pause. And any pause depends on the release of Israeli hostages. You see, from Israel's point of view, we are willing. But the question remains whether Hamas are willing Hamas are making outlandish demands in another orbit, another planet. If Hamas can come back down to reality, we'll, we'll be able to have a deal. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He previously served as a U.S. State Department official working on Middle East policy and the Arab-Israel peace process. Aaron David Miller, it's good to speak with you again. Thanks for having me. I wonder where you think we are in these negotiations. Uh, Joe Biden sounded very optimistic. Hamas, though, pouring cold water on the notion that a hostage deal is close. Where do you think these talks are at this point? I think we're closer now than we've, we ever have been since the November, mid-November exchange. And this will be more consequential in the sense that it's going to result, uh, hopefully, in a 45-day humanitarian extension, uh, cessation of a still at least temporary ceasefire, however you want to describe it. Uh, it could lead, because time is critical, critical here, and time is an ally's 45 days, it could lead to a significant surge of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. It'll lead to a de-escalation, at least during the six-week period of Israeli military activity. It could lead, assuming the parties agree, to a return of Palestinian civilians to northern Gaza from their crowded quarters uh, and areas now in Hanunis and Rafah. And it might, although I, I'm not terribly encouraged, uh, perhaps create some sort of transition to a more permanent um, de-escalation. Um, but I think it's important that it be reached because without disagreement, uh, I, I, I fear the situation is going to get worse before it gets worse. 
Uh, just on that, the idea of a permanent de-escalation, this is one of the conditions Hamas has on the table, that, that they won't agree to anything unless it, it, it leads to a permanent ceasefire. Even though Israel, Israeli negotiators have reportedly signaled they could release a group of high-profile Palestinian prisoners in exchange for Israeli host- hostages, these are prisoners that would have been convicted of very serious offenses. But do you see the permanent ceasefire being on the table here, or that Hamas could settle for less than the permanent ceasefire? I don't, because the the objectives and the interests of Israel and Hamas are still mutually irreconcilable. Israel is determined, uh, no matter how long it takes, to continue to degrade Hamas's military capacity, to kill its senior leaders, and and ultimately, I think, to erode its sovereignty in Gaza. That is to say, its capacity to influence uh, the politics of Gaza, the economy of Gaza, and certainly the security. Uh, of Gaza. And Hamas is determined uh, to resist. I think it's going to be extremely difficult for the Israelis to eradicate this organization. Uh, And one of the problems we're going to run into in the day after, the day after, the day after, is that any Palestinian governing structure linked to the Palestinian Authority, to the PLO, a technocratic government, is going to be hostage uh, in many respects to Hamas's intimidation, its co-optation. So I, I think this is something that no one, I think, has been able to get their arms around. And as of yet, no one has been able to come up with a security structure for the day after, or a political structure, Palestinians governing Gaza, which is free from Hamas influence. The, the hope is that this can maybe be done by the start of Ramadan, which starts on the 10th of March. Do you think that's a realistic time window for something to get done, given well, the obstacles? I mean, you know, my experience with Middle East negotiations, and let's be clear, this is, a, this is an extraordinary ne- negotiation. The key decision maker is meters below ground. Yeah. Uh, both parties are pledged to their, uh, the, the other's destruction. It's being handled indirectly. Everybody has an agenda. So in that case, my own view is, and I think the last several months bear me out, that nego- these negotiations only have two speeds, slow and slower. But I think there is some urgency now. I think it's a reasonable hope that by the beginning of Ramadan, you could see this limited 45 hostages roughly for 45 days of quiet. So Joe Biden hoped to have it done by the start of this weekend, the end of this weekend, is what he laid out yesterday. Is he speaking to a domestic audience with, with those words? He's got a big primary with, with, with a potential like opt-out voting uh, uh, protest movement happening in Michigan. What do you make of his target audience and how this is affecting him uh, domestically? I mean, I think Joe, Joe Biden he has an emotional stake in this, certainly. He's high regard for the security of Israel, the people of Israel, the idea of Israel. Uh, he's less uh, able as eloquently to express his concern in regard for Palestinian aspirations or even the, uh, the loss of life, exponential loss of life among Palestinians. But I think Joe Biden's objective right now is to get a deal. Because without a deal, the, U- the U.S. has no policy toward this war. Without a deal, uh, the political implications, I think, for the president are, are quite fraught. He needs to see the pictures change in Gaza. He needs to see the Israelis de-escalate, and he needs to see humanitarian assistance, not dribble into Gaza, surge into Gaza. And I think, to some degree, he was leaning out over his skis today, um, and he actually said he thought by Monday that there'd be a deal. 
And, you know, the, the the primary rule of a good negotiator is not to be in more of a hurry than the parties you're negotiating with, because otherwise the price goes up. So yeah. I think I don't think he's done damage at all to the prospects. I think this will be determined as to whether or not Israel and Hamas feel at this stage of their conflict that their mutual needs and requirements with respect to this exchange and this arrangement can be met. That's the key. And we need to remind ourselves, final point, that uh, no matter what kind of influence external parties think they have, this conflict from October 7th to where we are now has been driven by the two parties. The tone, the, the objectives uh, have been shaped and molded primarily by Israel and Hamas. And that, that, that's such a simple um, fact but I think it's too often lost sight of. No, I, I think that's, that's a very good point to make. Uh, and because they have their domestic politics that, that they are responding to and their domestic situations they're responding to. And Joe Biden has that in the U.S. He's got a big primary in Michigan tonight. There's a big Muslim population in that state, and it is a critical state on the presidential map for President Biden. Depending on how this goes, how do you think that could affect the administration's policy on, on this going forward? If, if there's a rebuke or a protest there for President Biden, in a, in a key state like this? Yeah, it's hard to know. And, and I think on one key issue, which is the U.S.-Israeli relationship, the President of the United States has refrained from exercising on paper at least the leverage he, he could have used. He could slow walk, restrict, or condition U.S. military since Israel hasn't done that. He could change our voting posture in New York, in the U.N., abstaining or voting for a UN General Assembly resolution, or more, uh, more importantly, a UN Security Council resolution, or he could have created a much different rhetorical frame, in which day after day he would simply say, "This government, this Israeli government, uh, is undermining the values and the interests that have made the U.S.-Israeli relationship as resilient and potent as it is." He could continue to build that frame, but he hasn't done any of those things. And I suspect it's driven by the fact that he has this emotional commitment to Israel. It's driven by domestic politics. Remember, the Republican Party, uh, the, the progressives may be pushing, the Democrats may be pushing the uh, administration to be tougher on Israel. The, the Republican Party, which is the Israel can do no wrong party, is basically waiting for Joe Biden uh, to appear as if he's pressuring the Israelis during this crisis. So he's got politics. He's got his own persona. And he's got some very difficult policy choices here. Uh, I wonder sometimes how the U.S. military would have behaved. Well, we saw, to some degree, in the wake of 9-11, which resulted in the two longest wars in American history. And we willingly, inadvertently, consciously, or unwilling or not, caused the death of hundreds of thousands of Afghans and Iraqis. So I, I think he's bound by these constraints. And I suspect, unless the Israelis do something that is so egregious, to use the president's words, so over the top and then some. I suspect he's going to try to manage his relationship with Benjamin Netanyahu uh, rather than to uh, create a sustained public breach and figuratively speaking, go to war with the prime minister. Aaron David Miller, we always appreciate the time and the insights. It's Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 
The RCMP commissioner confirms his force is looking into contracting potentially related to the ArriveCan Act. The conservatives questioned Commissioner Duem at the House Ethics Committee this afternoon. Are you investigating uh, any contractors or subcontractors who worked on the ArriveCan app? So we, we, we did receive uh, a complaint um, referring to inappropriate uh, contract or uh, inappropriate um, allegations, allegations. Okay. of misconduct. And, and with that, and that was not related to ArriveCan, and now with the ArriveCan, we've blended them both into one investigation. So you're investigating ArriveCan? Yeah. Well, not ArriveCan itself, we're investigating the totality. So in the House of Commons, Conservatives are using their opposition day to push for a detailed report from the Prime Minister on ArriveCan spending within three weeks. What are the political optics around making these demands when we know the RCMP is doing its own investigation? It's time to bring in the power panel on this. Emily Nicola is a columnist with Le Devoir. Michelle Cadario is a former Liberal campaign director. Francoise Boivin is a former NDP MP. And Kate Harrison is a Conservative political analyst. Hello, gang. Good to speak to you all. Hey, good to be here. Kate, uh, let's start with you. I mean, what, what do you make of this move by Pierre Polyev, by the Conservatives trying to get a report out of the Prime Minister? We know the police are at this, the Auditor General is at this, the Public Service Integrity Commissioner is at this. Uh, what's the value of this that, from the opposition today? Yeah. When when you're in opposition, your job really is to light a fire and walk away, and that includes maybe lighting the same fire in a bunch of different places in order to see what actually uh, what actually takes hold. And I think uh, the Arrive Can app issue is one that the Conservatives have done in that this respect very well. Um, there were times I think where many Conservatives were like, "Are is this juice really worth the squeeze here?" On on challenging this over and over and over again at committee uh, and it turns out that it was because now we have this auditor general report that says uh, the cost was at least 60 million when it was initially projected at about eighty thousand dollars and so the conservatives were right to continue to push this along um it's a bad day for the government when you're responding defensively it's a worse day when you're talking about rcmp investigations so i think the conservatives are right to be putting the government consistently on the defensive on this issue even if it's being studied in a multitude of other places because remember david they try at various points to shut down study uh, on this topic at committee. So uh, I think they're trying their, their luck in terms of trying to push this forward through as many avenues as possible because there's been a slow drip of information that's come out whenever they've gone to do that. Okay, so Francoise, the, the clip we played there before the break, uh, Pierre Polyev stood up and, and said he had a letter from Commissioner Duem uh, confirming an investigation into Arrive Camp. But I want to just show you the text of the letter. All it says is mm -hmm. the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is assessing all available information, including the Auditor General's performance audit report, and will take appropriate reaction. Is that confirmation of a formal police investigation into ArriveCan, or are we really where we were when he testified at committee that they had complaints about subcontracting and they're looking into that and the players overlap as opposed to the way it was sold in, in question period today? Uh, uh, the way it was sold uh, in question period is not at all how I depicted that letter to be when I first uh, saw it on, on, on the channel, on, on CBC News World. I'm like, that's not what uh, the letter says. It's, it's kind of a, a, a regular type of RCMP uh, letter that says uh, uh, we are on the, on, on the case. We don't exactly tell you which one. And uh, so you cannot get up in the house, although you can get up in the house and say pretty much anything because you're, you're, you're protected. Uh, but it's not at all what the letter is, is, is saying. But it's, it's 
it's the political game. And uh, am I surprised that it was played that way? I mean, uh, it, it sounded ominous. I mean, when Pierre Poiliev got, got up uh, in the house today, uh, you, you felt like they were, the RCMP was really investigating uh, a rife can. And you saw in committee, his team is, is trying to get the RCMP to say they are And uh, they, they kept saying, we are not. We are looking into a few things, a few complaints, but we are not investigating uh, a, a rife can. Will the public make the difference? I'm not sure. Uh, and I agree with Kate. It's the job of the opposition. If I was in the opposition, maybe uh, I would jump on this and hope this keeps uh, being there because uh, the, the numbers are, 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 are playing in the mind of people, saying from 80,000, even though we all know it was not really 80,000. Right. That's but that's what point. sticks yeah. to mind. It's 80,000 to 60 million. So, and, and no documents and people not working for that amount of money. So it's, it's a file that, uh, it's a gift that keeps on giving and they will use any tool uh, at their disposition to keep it alive. Yeah, uh, uh, Michelle, th th this is not a good news story for the government. Like, I, I, you know, there's no, no downplaying the, the, the implications of this. But, you know, the facts are, are very important in, in talking about these things. I just wonder where you think this is in, in terms of sort of a, a, a political problem uh, for the liberals and, and uh, the, the value of, of what Mr. Polyev is advocating for here, that the prime minister's office comes back with a report in three weeks. I'm not sure they'd buy it even if Justin Trudeau's office did it. Well, I think that what Mr. Polyev is doing desperately is trying to f think of creatively and taking creative license in terms of how he interprets the letter um, of ways to keep it into the uh, in the media stream, keeping it a news story, reminding Canadians of incompetence. That's what he wants to do, right? Because his file, there's nothing good about it. And once it goes to the RCMP, where it should be, because it is a legitimate investigation now, they're no longer going to be speaking on it. They're not going to be giving weekly press conferences to tell you where they are in the investigation. And many, many months, even a year, might go by while they continue their continue to do their work. Um, and that doesn't create news. And so by kind of putting some kind of a odd three-week um, deadline for a whole bunch of information, half of it's gratuitous to the actual topic anyways, then all of a sudden in three weeks... Well, let's just, you know, as Kate said, put some more, uh, put some more um, gasoline on that flame and uh, try and reignite it once again and remind Canadians again of incompetence, as is, as is their job to do. Uh, Emily, how do you think the public views this? I, I don't know if Arrive Can is front of mind for people or not. I mean, the numbers are eye-popping, certainly the, the anger over it and the allegations around it, especially at that committee hearing that we saw last week. Uh, it went off in all directions. How do you think people are viewing this at home? Uh, I'm reminded of uh, something on a completely different topic, but pretty much same time last year, uh, where the you know I love the level of transparency on, on this show. You know, people talking about the role of the opposition as lighting as many fires as possible. <laughs> but, uh, the fires that were lit all at the same time last year, pretty much using the same tactic, was around the issue of foreign interference, right. where which uh, nobody's worried about in the polls today. Uh, that nothing has been done basically to solve the issue. Uh, but pretty much the same tactic was being used in terms of creating deadlines for the government as a way uh, to uh, make sure that the issue would stay uh, in the media as long as possible. And it worked uh, last year, although it's now for an issue that uh, is uh, very far away from Canadian minds, although it's still ongoing. 
there's a commission that was launched. So um, I don't know if I'm the leader of a position. I'm 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 looking at you know the result of what went on last year and this this idea of you know just putting deadlines of we need the government to do this by then unless um, etc. That that seemed to work on a different issue where 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 the word uh, scandal and mismanagement uh, was thrown a lot. And so uh, if I'm also the leader of, of a position of the opposition, I'm just really hoping that there's some sort of details that comes up that keeps on feeding the the flames of this fire. Last year around, it was, you know, something around the Trudeau Foundation and whatnot. Mm-hmm. If there's some sort of details that they can hang on to make that uh, continue to be in a new cycle, um, it will be. Uh, will it be something that is remembered uh, by the next time we have an election? And no, because um, so many things can happen between now and then. Yeah, Katie, it was interesting. The, the, the question was asked once in English, once in French, and then promptly clipped and put on social media with a link to a petition <laughs> to sign up. You know, it's part of the data collection exercise. Uh, that, that is, you know, the standard operating procedure for uh, political parties, but especially when you've got uh, something like this. But, but to, to, I just wonder how serious uh, this particular thing could be politically uh, uh, for the liberals, right? It, it, I mean, the police investigation is one thing wherever that goes. We have the findings from the Auditor General and stuff, but so far, it's been all confined within the civil service. There hasn't been a political connection mm-hmm. except perhaps competence and oversight, but no sort of liberal connection substantiated, no corruption uh, connection substantiated when it comes to political actors. It's all within the companies and, and the CBSA at this point. Yeah, and, and I think what you're touching on there, David, is you know a, a thread of mismanagement on mm-hmm. the part and mm-hmm. lack of oversight on the part of political masters over the civil service. And uh, there were a lot of things that moved very quickly during COVID. They had to move quickly, especially on procurement. Uh, I think a lot of Canadians, a lot of conservatives too, would recognize that. Um, but what we're talking about in terms of um, G- uh, GC strategies and the arrive can app like that is not moving quickly like there is something deeply flawed and broken here where you have no competition for a process that is defined uh, by the person who ends up winning the contract that's like having a board game but only one person knows the rules um, so it, there's something really broken here in terms of of what occurred with GC but I think you know put aside the the police investigation though that is quite serious and if we're debating semantics of a letter from the RCMP um, you know I think that's a good day for the conservatives when that's happening um there's a political price here which is again that thread of uh incompetent governance uh mismanagement uh and an inability to deliver services because remember this app didn't even really work as designed when they ended up actually getting it in the end so it's uh, this amalgamation of issues uh that that is compiled adding up for for trudeau um mismanagement and incompetence being the the overriding theme between those well, Francoise, I mean, that's certainly something no government wants to deal with, you know, eight to ten years into the life cycle, allegations of mismanagement and incompetence. But, um, you know, the opposition leader's got to be clear in his claims, too, right? And that letter doesn't say in its plain reading what he said it said. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's, there's enough there there without adding to it, it seems. Well, it doesn't seem to have much common sense in, in my book. But, uh, you know, it's not the first time you hear... Uh, uh, leaders exaggerating or politician uh, exaggerating uh, certain facts and they hope that what they're saying is what stick into mind and i'm pretty sure i will hear it down in the street on social media uh hey the rcmp is doing this 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 no and then you'll argue with them 
that's not exactly what the letter says. And then a big ar 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 uh, argument will, will, will start and they'll stick to their position. So I think the, the message is done. So I agree with Kate. It's a good day yeah. for the conservative. Is it a good day for, for the facts, for, 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 for truth? They'll say we're not lying. We're maybe exaggerating. And politics often is uh, a, a, a lot of exaggeration. I don't think it adds to the, but I'm not surprised. And that's uh, the type of uh, politics that is uh, uh, being being done. So they wanted to make the point. RCMP confirmed to us. And remember, I wrote because he started by saying I wrote to the RCMP. So more than that, it gives an impression. RCMP is investigating because me, common sense king, I asked them to do so. So and that's what's going to stick. And it's a good uh, a, a good. Um, uh, political play, if I can express it that way. Do I like it? Not necessarily, but uh, it's a good political play. Common Sense King is a, is a heck of a title. I don't know if that one's going to stick or could end up on a banner. So, Michelle, uh, uh, how do you push back on that uh, if you're the government? Like, uh, the facts of this appear to be bad, right? So you can't really argue it on that basis. So how do you push back against uh, this sort of rhetoric that we saw today? The facts are bad, but, you know, for every minute that they're fighting about what the letter does or does not say, they're not actually talking to Canadians about the progress that they might be making on the housing fire or how what's happening with affordability and how they're trying to make lives better for Canadians. Um, the actual issues that are, are going to be on the, the ballot. And so, you know, they don't need these kinds of distractions. And so getting the RCMP to do their work and absolutely trying to, to turn back to the issues that matter to Canadians, that's where the Liberals have to be. They have to get back on solid footing on that. And, you know, conservatives in some ways are trying to run down the clock. They've got a nice lead, and so now they just want to kind of, you know, throw the ball any which way and kind of make a big muddle in the, in the middle and not actually play on the issues that are, that are going to be on the ballot. And so for every day, for every minute that they're not talking about affordability, it's a loss for the Liberals, and they can't afford any more of those losses. They've got to get back on onto the right messaging, onto the right issue topics. Yeah, if you keep losing days, you're running out of days. Uh, Emily, uh, final word to you on, on this topic. Uh, I, I cannot help but experience uh, a form of cognitive dissonance right now because one of the top news uh, in the, the French news cycle this week uh, is the issue of is there too much partisanship in our politics and is that driving away <laughs> really good leaders uh, because the mayor yeah. Gadineau just resigned. Yeah. Uh, it's basically My saying city. that this is taking a lot of a lot of energy away from actual policy and that especially women are just basically driven uh, away from politics as a result of that. And there's a huge amount of uh, people who were elected in local politics who have resigned since the last election cycle. And uh, there are calls to look into how the toxic political culture that we live in uh, is, 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 is leading to a wave of resignation from people who are elected. And I'm I'm hearing that and hearing this conversation on, yeah, just that's just the, the way politics is played. We just like fire. Uh, you know, uh, it's a bad day for government. It's a good day for the conservatives. That's just, you know, a good play. Um, and I'm hearing those two conversations together. I'm like, yeah, maybe maybe we should launch an investigation, not on this, but on, you know, the toxicity of partisanry uh, <laughs> in politics and what, how it's, you know, we're, we're, we're just there saying, well, it's not necessarily good for the facts, but it's good for politics. Uh, I think that in itself, the way it's normalized is very telling of what's going on in this country. Uh, that's an interesting point to end on. 
Okay. Uh, gang, uh, I want to thank you all for, uh, for being here today. Thanks to the Power Panel. Emily, Nicola, Michelle Cadario, Kate Harrison, and Francois Boivin. Thanks, gang. The Liberal government is cracking down on harmful online content. New legislation tabled this week proposes heavier sentences, new regulatory bodies, and changes to a number of laws, all part of the effort to better protect Canadians and particularly children online. What I find troubling is that there's more rules for my son's Lego than there is for the most dangerous toy in my home and in every home in this country. And that toy is the screen that your child is on right now, whether that's a phone, a tablet, or a computer screen. And we are changing that with this legislation because protecting kids is fundamentally what this legislation is all about. Online services will now face new measures aimed at protecting children, including the duty to remove content that sexually victimizes a child within 24 hours, and to introduce special protections to their platforms such as parental controls, content warnings, and safe search settings. Signe Arneson is the Associate Executive Director of the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, which was one of the groups consulted by the government on this bill. Signe Arneson, thanks for your time today. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. So your team was, was consulted on this legislation. Do you feel the government hit the mark with the measures it rolled out yesterday? Well, we think it's critical that we have an online harms bill. We have to get regulations in place. We've been on the front lines for 20 years facing uh, the mass devastation occurring to children. And year over year, it's getting worse. So we are pleased that this has been tabled and we look forward to supporting the process as it moves along. So your organization operates cybertips.ca, which is the national tip line for reporting online sexual exploitation of children. So you're right there on the front lines of this. What did you tell the government you needed to help you in that effort? Well, we talked all about the issues we're facing, um, you know, within the spectrum of harm occurring for kids. You know, that goes from the little ones being sexually abused within homes by someone that they know it's recorded and then distributed online and are sending upwards of 20,000 notices every single day to providers uh, around the globe to get that material uh, removed. And then moving all the way into teens, youth becoming more independent online and the issues that they're facing with online sexual violence. I mean, that's increased by 255% for us as an organization since the pandemic. So that would involve online luring, the non-consensual sharing of intimate images, kids being sextorted. So we basically shared the explosion uh, of harms that just get worse year over year. And we, you know, we need to make tech companies accountable for the products that kids are intersecting with on a daily basis. Do, do you think it covers uh, enough of, of uh, the tech companies? I mean, private messaging is out, some of the, the, the chat uh, programs that people use on their phones and some of the smaller social media platforms and interaction platforms are not necessarily or automatically covered by this legislation. Are, are there gaps still there, even with this uh, more robust framework that the government rolled out yesterday? You know, this is an important starting point. It can be incredibly difficult to enter into contemplating regulating an environment that really has had no guardrails so we are understanding absolutely of the complexities and trying to manage that do we think there could be more added sure um you know file hosts are not included so we see a lot of child sexual abuse material as well as adolescent content that will be uploaded onto those services these are the types of things that we'll be sharing during the committee hearings 
overall, though, we're incredibly pleased that, you know, we we have a starting point to begin this really critical discussion to reel in a completely, um, you know, out of control environment um, that kids were being, you know, really devastated within. So, you know, we'll be talking about those things for sure. So, so this starting point also includes a new online safety commission and, and methods to report um, harmful content online that should be removed, similar to what your, your tip line does. How do you see this working? You know, and what should the government be focusing on here through, through this commission? How do you see it, 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 it working on a day-to-day practice, practical level? Well, that's not necessarily our area of expertise. What we know is we're critical in this story. We've been doing this for over 20 years. As you mentioned, operating the national tip line, we're receiving, you know, two to 3,000 reports a month for, from Canadians over and above the work that we're doing with uh, the tool called uh, Project Arachnid. So we are really important in, in the mix of this. It's really difficult to assess this just based on the bill. So many of those nuanced details come mm. when the regulations um, are put into play. So we may have 50% of the story, but there's no question that it's going to be critical that our organization is working with the commission as well as the ombudsperson person in uh, addressing online sexual victimization against children. The bill is quite specific on what needs to be removed immediately, the type of content that needs mm-hmm. to be removed immediately, and, and it was narrowed deliberately, as I'm sure you're aware, to avoid concerns about overreach and, and inhibiting uh, uh, freedom of speech. But could the narrow focus have other unintended consequences? Could it, could, could it be too narrow and leave some gaps uh, in the protection, in your view? Well, again, I get back to the fact that this is this is a starting point, and you you then come out of the gate and you start building upon what your what you see may be uh, potentially missing. I mean, we're really pleased to see that the focus is on a duty to protect children. That is a cornerstone of the bill. So, how this bill, uh, which will eventually hopefully be law, will be interpreted, will be based on that. So that's pretty essential. There's issues related to, um, you know, children being sexually victimized and survivors, their uh, images uh, being out online that have been identified that, that were really, really critical. There's also addressing issues like physical abuse and the recording of that and the distribution online in terms of inciting violence. So those are really important things that I think the government was listening to in relation to what we were seeing. Can more be done always? But again, this is this is just the beginning of the journey within Canada, and it, but it's a critical step. We have to start somewhere. There were concerns with the original uh, attempts to deal with online harms that, that maybe the government was going a bit too far and it was going to interfere with, with people's right to express unpopular opinions online. Um, there's been some criticism of this, uh, not so much on the child protection side, but maybe on the criminal justice changes. The conservatives are saying that maybe this goes a little bit too far in terms of banning opinions that contradict what they call the prime minister's radical ideology. What's your sense of the balance the government struck there in, in terms terms of dealing with the child protection stuff and then also bringing in um, uh, the criminal code and and the speech restrictions to deal with sort of the continuum of harm that's out there? Well, I think a huge, a huge focus in this bill is around children and that is so urgently needed and we have been desperately calling for that. This, listen, this can't continue. And the idea that somehow criminal law is going to get us out of this bad mess 
is really short-sighted because at the end of the day, what that suggests is we're permitted to let children first be harmed and then we'll do some patchwork with law enforcement stepping in and all the other systems that are in place. This isn't good enough. We shouldn't be allowing this level of a devastation to be occurring for children. So these regulations really acknowledge that these companies that have released these products and services into market, which children so regularly intersect with, simply are not safe. So we think this is a bold and important step. We're not in the business of commenting on uh, the hate side of this file, but I can tell you what the government has put in this bill in relation to children is desperately needed, and we are really encouraged by this step. Signe Arneson, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.